How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code BONUSCONTENT, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code Bonus content. Thank you for your support. Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Washington, D.C., one of the last lovely days of summer here. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by a group of our uh, friends, longstanding friends. One of them is Dr. Evelyn Farkas, who's the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia, uh, and is currently the Executive Director of the McCain Institute. How are you doing, Evelyn? Good. Thank you, David. Glad to see you. Uh, David Sanger is the White House National Security Correspondent and a senior writer for the New York Times. He's you know, off at his luxurious estate um, in the northern reaches. How are you doing, David? You know, if it was luxurious, I'd be doing fine, but it's perfectly comfortable, and it's not Washington in the middle of the summer. Um, well, I'm glad that, that, that you're comfortable. I have to say, Washington today is not so bad. And of course, well, a man with an uncanny nose for the best climate in America, um, Mark Hurtling is a retired lieutenant general with the U.S. Army, currently works as a military and national security analyst for CNN. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing well, and I wish I was with David because I'm struggling through the dog days of summer here in in uh, Central Florida, and it is rough. Uh, yeah, I can I can just imagine. And I mean, do you have a lot of those those Burmese pythons there? You know, I've been reading a lot about. No, that, those are farther south. I, I'm not sure what the heck's going on with that. It's just another Florida man event, I guess. Uh, that we have to be careful of. So many things to be careful of in Florida. Yeah, don't, don't, there's no question about that. Um, well, look, we're not going to talk about Florida unless you really, really want to, in which case I've changed the focus. But uh, we haven't done a show which is kind of deep dive into Ukraine, Russia, NATO, where we stand with all of that. Uh, you know, the last times we've talked about it, we've talked about you know, a spring offensive that became a summer offensive that became a don't expect too much at once offensive that, you know, I mean, we've sort of gone through some stages of that. Uh, Mark, in recent days, there have been some talk of not insignificant progress by the Ukrainians. uh, And they also continue their innovation uh, with things like 
marine drones, which seem to be enabling them to strike in places like the Kerch Bridge. What, what, what's your what's your snapshot of where we are? Well, you know, David, the last time I think we talked was about six months or so ago. And and during that time, when everyone was gearing up for that spring offensive, I, I think, and not to say I told you so, but I think I said something like, don't get too excited because it's going to be very tough. We're talking about the Ukrainian force that has changed from a defensive posture to an offensive one, which is always much more difficult. And a Russian force that has the advantage of having built up uh, minefields, trenches, wire, uh, and all sorts of other obstacles. And it's much easier to conduct a defensive operation. Uh, But what we've seen, especially over the last several weeks, as Ukraine has picked their way through some of the frontline forces, I could name a few towns for you like Robotine and Urizane and a few others that they have been successful uh, in attacking and actually gaining a foothold and, and moving gradually through the front line of the so-called Servokin uh, defensive belts, of which there are three lines. And we're seeing some success. And they're learning as they go, as any force on the offensive does when they're going against complex obstacle belts. Um, and they're adapting. Uh, they don't have all of the elements that you would normally need in a complex combined arms operation against trench lines, uh, but they are doing, in my view, exceedingly well, although they're probably suffering casualties just like the Russians are. They've adapted their way of warfare from what they were taught at many of the training centers in Europe as they put together these consolidated combined arms teams, and they have continued to adapt. And what we're seeing now, which I think is is really fascinating, as you just mentioned, uh, some some innovations for the Ukrainian force. These are not new things, but they are new to Ukraine, especially this this unmanned sea drone, uh, which is you know a lot of the militaries of the world had those, but it seems unique that Ukraine has put them together within their factories and used a couple of thousand dollars to build a 850 kilogram explosive device that can travel several hundred miles and attack large ships and get a huge uh, return on the investment. So in my view, it's not going, the, the conflict is not going to end anytime soon. It's going to continue into the fall. It will probably continue into next year uh, with some additional actions in Zaporizhia and, and Kherson Oblast. Uh, but, but Ukraine is continuing to push and, and Russia even though they have adapted, is continuing to take large amounts of casualties. And sorry for that long diatribe. Well, not a diatribe, very useful scene setter for us. Evelyn, do you agree with the scene setter? And um, I guess the critical question from the point of view of both uh, Ukraine and, and, and Ukraine's allies in NATO is, is it enough progress? In other words, is Ukraine doing enough to maintain the support that it's had and to continue um, the flow of weapons that it needs? So in terms of the overall picture that General Hurtling described, I would agree, and I will concede that I did expect to see a little more progress and faster progress on the part of the Ukrainians. I also expected, though, that there would be more Western-supplied new equipment on the battlefield than we've seen so far. Um, I know that the F-16s weren't scheduled to be supplied until the fall, so that wasn't part of my 
um, calculation, although now there's really kind of a question mark over when they're going to be employed by the Ukrainians. Um, Overall, I would say that the slow, methodical progress of the Ukrainians is a good thing. Um, It's occurred in the backdrop of a lot of turmoil in Russia, economic turmoil, political turmoil, and a great diplomatic offensive on the part of the the Ukrainian president Zelensky in going to Jeddah and talking to those countries that I like to call fence sitters, plus China, which is not really a fence sitter. China doesn't want Russia defeated, so it wants some version of a of a of a outcome where Russia at least gets a compromise, not a win necessarily, but but can achieve a compromise. Um, so the, the, the incremental progress has been good, but I continue to maintain that it's strategically smart and morally correct to provide more military assistance to Ukraine so that they can end the fighting and kick the Russians out or achieve whatever compromise is acceptable to them as fast as possible. So David, you know, first of all, you can uh, add any perspectives you've got on what Mark and what Evelyn have said. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, th- I think, uh, you know, if you could provide us with a little bit of a sense of um, your sense of, do you think the West, do you think Washington is doing enough fast enough to help Ukraine with this? Or will we look back and look at this slow pace and say, we should have done more. It, we we are part of the reason things have uh, support may peter out over time. It's a great question, David, because the question when you ask this of the administration, they usually have two different answers. One is, yes, we know it looks like we have apportioned this stuff out, but we've apportioned it out at the pace at which the Ukrainians can take it and use it and make use of it which is their argument about not giving jet fighters or long-range artillery at the beginning, but of course now are are beginning to. And I think there'll be a lot of people going back, particularly military historians, and Mark can talk about this a lot more expertly than I can, and ask the question, if they had had more earlier, would it have made that big a difference? Or is the administration right that they, they couldn't have absorbed it earlier? But we are where we are. And I think that that then takes you to two big questions. One is, are we likely to get any time soon to a position where a real negotiation could take place? And from the description that we've heard from Mark and from Evelyn, I guess I have to conclude, no, not any time soon. That in, unless there was a significant breakthrough by one side or the other, there's really no motivation to go to the negotiating table. Uh, and if any of the three of you disagree with that, I, I, I'd be eager and, and hope I was wrong, uh, but I, I just don't see it. And the second question comes, what is Putin's strategy from here on in? Because he is, uh, as Mark suggested, taking significant casualties. We think the Ukrainians are taking significant casualties as well. They both probably lost about 100,000 uh, troops in the, the course of this. Of course, Russia is a much larger uh, population. 
Uh, and th those numbers are very hard to pin down, but in part because the Ukrainians don't talk at all about it and the Russians do, but probably aren't telling the truth. So there's sort of three ways that Putin could lose, uh, that, that Putin figures at this point that the Ukrainians could lose. Um, one is that the Ukrainians run out of ammunition. That's not likely to happen anytime soon since we have been um, giving them new supplies, and that's what the cluster munitions were about. A second is that the Europeans and NATO nations lose interest or willingness to ship more, and that gets to Evelyn's point about whether or not we could have gotten more in from us or from uh, other NATO states. And I think the third is that Putin may think he can simply hold out for the presidential election and hope that either President Trump wins or someone with President Trump's views about the Ukraine war wins, which is to say that we shouldn't be at the center of it. Because the Biden administration has done more than provide money and arms. They've also corralled the NATO nations together. And if you lost that corralling of the of the allies, I think the whole thing would fall apart. So if I was Putin, I'd be just trying to keep a low-level war going through the year and see where I was after the presidential election. And we know from his experience between the invasion of Crimea in 2014 and the invasion of the rest of Ukraine in 2022 that he knows how to conduct a low-level war here. We do. We do. But let me let me sort of redouble um, my efforts to dig onto that question to you, Mark, um, because you've been watching very carefully as different weapon systems have been um, uh, sent to Ukraine or promised to Ukraine. Some of those promised, like F-16s, are, are months away. Um, uh, I think uh, some of our uh, Abrams tanks are weeks away. Um, are we going too slow? Should there should we be sending attackums? Should there be less of this kind of constant Hamlet-like debate about what we should be sending to them that would that we continue to get from the U.S. and other NATO countries? You know, I, I I've been accused of backing up the Biden administration on everything they've done, and that's not what I've been doing. Uh, what I've been doing is talking from the standpoint of understanding how uh, different elements of a combined armed team is are synchronized through training and the conduct of exercises before they're uh, put into battle. And what I would suggest is is both Secretary Austin and Minister of Defense Reznikov have been masterful in getting just the things they need at the right time to allow Ukraine to conduct the next step of the operation. And if things are given too fast uh, and, and the Ukrainian army is deluged with new pieces of equipment, they are going to have some of the kinds of challenges we've seen with this spring offensive. You know, it was interesting to me a few weeks ago reading in, in David's paper, <laughs> the New York Times put together a piece that said, you know, after four weeks of training, the Ukrainian force is stumbling with uh, the things that the that the West has given them. Well, having been a guy that's used Western equipment for a very long time, I know that four weeks is certainly not enough 
to train a complex complex operation like a combined arms uh, offensive against complex obstacles. That takes years, if not longer, uh, to get a force to do those kind of things. So, you know, the Ukraine, the Ukrainian forces ask for a lot of things, tanks, Bradleys, uh, air defense, artillery. And now it was time to put them together. And they realized how tough that was to take all of these pieces of Western equipment. And by all, you know, when you talk about the number of new brigades, and let me emphasize that, I know that Ukraine has a lot more than the 12 brigades of new Western equipment they have, but that's what they have in terms of new brigades. That's about four divisions, U.S. divisions worth of equipment. And when you train those in a small period of time as they had, they're going to have problems employing them on a tough battlefield across the 400-kilometer frontage against minefields that have been in place over an eight-month period of time. So... I will stop there and say, when we talk about even newer equipment, and I'm specifically talking about two things, because you mentioned them, David, F-16s, which require a significant amount of not pilot training, but support and maintenance. Uh, you know, you, you know, I think the belief is that you can throw a set of keys to an F-16 to a Ukrainian trained pilot and they'll take off and go across the forward line of troops and start bombing Russian forces. It's not that simple. There are things that are required like suppression of enemy air defense, refueling operations, uh, aircraft that show you where the enemy is, a coordination between air and ground forces, uh, joint tactical air controllers on the ground that call in the weapon systems. All of those things, the U.S. Air Force, I mean, if anyone has seen the movie Maverick, they know how hard it is to send four ships out just to conduct one mission. That's the kind of thing that goes along with providing aircraft. With ATACMS, and, and there's one other thing that's linked to ATACMS, when you're talking about ATACMS versus Storm Shadow, you're talking about a ballistic missile that goes high up in the air and then enters an enemy territory on a, on a straight descent, very different than a storm shadow that follows the nap of the earth like a cruise missile. Why is that important? Well, we've seen how well Ukraine has performed against ballistic missiles once they were given air defense pieces of equipment. The Russian army has a couple of things at their advantage. Artillery, which the Ukrainians have seen, they have unbelievable electronic warfare capability, which will throw missiles off, and they have some of the best air defense equipment in the world. So when we give them things like F-16s or attack them missiles, those are going to be prone to be intercepted first by electronic warfare equipment and then by air defense like S-400s and the Buk missile systems. Those are the kind of considerations that, that a military guy takes into, into account when you're talking, how do we get the best equipment on the ground that will cause the most uh, capabilities for the Ukrainian force. And I know I'm going to get heat for this, but I'm just going to say it. F-16s are part of the combined arms team, but HIMARS missiles will allow the Ukrainian force to do the same kinds of things, and I would almost say better than an F-16 would. So they've been compensated for by the precision GPS capability of a HIMARS, something that the F-16, and neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians are going forward of what they call the forward line of troops. 
neither one of those forces has air parity or air su superiority because they don't go forward into the enemy's territory. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good point, and it, it, it uh, amplifies something that I thought of as you were talking, which was the movie Maverick, to me, was the best argument why we don't need manned aircraft uh, <laughs> uh, that I've that I that, you know that I've ever seen. It's like you know, it's like no, don't do it this way. This is a terrible way to solve that problem. Every Air Force person in the world is now going to put you on their hate list for saying that, David. But there is an element of truth to that. Yeah, well, I would go a step further and say it's just true. Uh, but in any event, um, I'll, I'll take the I'll take the hits. Um, Evelyn, um, there seems to be something about being a political leader who's in trouble with the law that immediately puts them into a kind of kinship with Putin. Uh, we obviously have Trump here. Bibi likes Putin and gets along with him. Uh, and, uh, you know, today, um, uh, former French President Sarkozy said, you know, we need Russia. Uh, they need us. Uh, we're not going to give them back Crimea. It was never really theirs to begin with. Um, and it just struck me as, you know, one of those things where we talk about, you know, NATO has a unified force, but there are a lot of voices in Europe. Sarkozy is one, Orban is another. Um, uh, Both ethnically Hungarian, by the way. Uh, well, that's why I'm, I'm turning, sorry to that's say. That's why I'm turning to you that's here, Evelyn. Hungarian. That's why I'm turning to you, Evelyn. Um, uh, talk to me about, you know, or react to what Sarkozy said. Well, I, I confess I didn't see the actual quote, but um, the idea that we need Russia, I mean, Germany's full of people who have been saying that for decades, if, centuries, frankly, and um, nobody's saying that we abandon Russia or that we pretend Russia doesn't exist. I remember being in the administration and people saying things like, just leave Russia in the corner, you know. Um, you can't you can't think that you're going to leave Russia in the corner. You have to deal with Russia. Russia is a part of reality. Um, but the idea that we need them for something is not, I don't find, defensible or comprehensible, really. Yes, we have to figure out a modus vivendi with them, especially if you live in Europe and especially because they are nuclear power and they're a member of the Security Council um, and we all live on this um, endangered planet together. <laughs> But um, the reality is that this government doesn't deserve us to work with them. Time and time again, they've shown that they don't deserve it. It's a brutally murderous government run by Vladimir Putin since 2000. He's used these military techniques of, of again, murder against civilians, human rights violations left, right, and center in Chechnya, in Syria, together with the Syrian government, and now in Ukraine. And if we can't stand up to him after all of that and after the legacy of the Second World War, where we set up a whole system of laws and institutions to prevent exactly this kind of world massacre, massacre I know it's not exactly World War and you, the parallels don't fit exactly, but the fact that you have a leader of one of the members of the Security Council using these sort of methods and so blatantly has to be answered. It has to be stopped. So, you know, we can't pretend it's business as usual or we need Russia for something. Russia needs us and Russia needs to be met with firmness. I think part of the problem that we have 
when we're thinking about policy options vis-a-vis Russia is this fear that somehow the Russians are going to escalate and that it'll be bad for us. That if we're firm and if we if we stand firm, that the answer from Russia will be an escalation. And I don't think that that's an obvious truth. I, I am willing to take the risk that if we stand firm, Russia will actually back down and that we will put an end to all of this. Yes, I know that if I were sitting in the White House thinking about potential escalation, I would have to factor in the danger posed by Vladimir Putin, who has talked so openly about using nuclear force. But I also will be reassured somewhat by the fact that the Chinese government, the only kind of friend, quote unquote, of the of the Russians, it's really more a frenemy, um, that that government has spoken very clearly against the use of any kind of nuclear material, nuclear weapon, and even against the saber rattling. So um, I, I really believe that where we go wrong right now is to, is to be too understanding of Russia or too afraid of Russia. So in Sarkozy's case, I don't, I don't really understand what's motivating him. But certainly in our case, I think that we, we are too afraid of what, what might lie beyond Putin or what might happen if Russia is decisively defended. You know, I'll put it out there. We're afraid of the Russian Federation falling apart. I don't know that we should be afraid of that. Uh, so, so I, I am someone who is willing to take, to accept some risk for the benefit of putting an end to this war faster and getting Putin to back down. Well, um, just as one, uh, person listening here, uh, I think that all makes a lot of sense and I agree completely. Uh, David, uh, Evelyn brought up China. Um, you're writing a book about China and Russia and the United States and um, the, uh, the, the, the rise of, of uh, major power conflict um, or tension in, and its importance in the era ahead. Uh, the, the, the China-Russia story can be described a lot of ways. Evelyn just called it you know, a relationship of frenemies. How do you think China feels about how this war is going, and um, what did you think of the role that they played in this uh, this Saudi conversation? Uh, well, first, I don't think that the Chinese are very happy with this because if the Russians were going to go ahead and do this, as Putin suggested to Xi Jinping, he would in that opening to the Olympics in 2022. They just wanted to get it done quickly. They wanted him to wait until the Olympics was over. But once he did that, they just wanted it done quickly and cleanly and move on. And instead, they are finding themselves allied with somebody who is not looking quite as strong as he did. And of course, it's Russia and China that for very different reasons are now encountering quite difficult economic times as well. Before I come back to them, David, let me just pick up on the Sarkozy comment because it reminded me of an earlier moment. So here we are, what, 18 months, 19 months into the war. Sarkozy says, well, you know, we're going to have to deal with the Russians sooner or later. So it was sort of the beginning of, can't we just sort of forget about this and move on? What did that remind you of? It reminded me of uh, what we heard from uh, Chancellor Merkel in Germany 
about a year, year and a half after uh, Crimea when she signed on to Nord Stream 2 and said, you know, Russia's been a reliable supplier and basically was saying, okay, we're done with our sanctions phase here. We're going to go back to sort of life as normal, which I think was the message Sarkozy was trying to send. I think that would be a a considerable strategic mistake. Because if you're asking yourself what made Putin go do what he did in 2022, it was the thought that after about a year or a year and a half, we would tire of the sanctions and go back to business as usual. And there's a little responsibility of this, and I think uh, Evelyn hinted at it, in the Obama administration as well, where there were a fair number of people who were saying, keep Russia in a corner, you know, don't incite them. And I think that basically Putin was saying, well, Biden was a member of the Obama administration. He surrounded himself by advisors who were in at that time. They're essentially going to take the same position. He got it wrong. They didn't take that position. In part, they didn't, I think, out of, if not guilt, then at least a reconsideration of the wisdom of the way they approached this in 2014. Um, just to finish up on your question on the- I just, I'd, I'd like to say here, because we've been doing this together for eight years, and I don't say it enough. I agree with you 100%. Wow. Gee, this has only happened twice. In, in eight years. Yeah, no, I eight know. Eight years, yeah. yeah. And I can't even remember what the other one was. David. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, last point on, on uh, China's role here. So China has taken the position, yes, we want a peace negotiation. Yes, we're happy to go take the role. The only words they haven't uttered is that Russia's got to go back to the lines that existed on February 22 of uh 2022 well they do they have said a couple of times that um you know they believe in international law and and the the sanctity of boundaries and so forth which is pretty close to that close but not quite saying you're not going to get a peace agreement in which you gain land and you know do i think the administration the biden administration would press Zelensky to take a deal that involve returning Russia to its old lines and then basically beginning to lift sanctions and, you know, ignore some of the human rights abuses. I wouldn't be shocked if they did. They'd make When you say old lines, 2014 or 2020? 2022. Yeah. I don't think the administration believes that uh, they're never going to acknowledge Crimea as Russian territory. But I don't think they're going to they're they're going to press Zelensky to seek to take back Crimea, especially because of what Evelyn raised, which is you know what where are the red lines that would lead Putin to threaten or actually use a tactical nuclear weapon? I think threatening Crimea would probably be one of them. Mark the Attackums might be another. That was one that explicitly the Russians said: if you do that, we may reach for our nuclear arsenal. I don't know if they still believe that. Um, I agree with Evelyn. We've probably been too worried about pushing the the Russians because things that we're doing, providing today to Ukraine, we wouldn't have even considered providing a year and a half ago because we thought it was too escalatory. And it's turned out we haven't had horizontal escalation, which is to say 
the Russians have not attacked into NATO countries. And so far, thank God, we haven't had vertical escalation, which is to say using a nuclear weapon. Um, I believe as things get worse for the Russians, we're probably going to see both. This is the point where I normally take a break and I say thanks to everybody who's been listening. Uh, and that if you want to keep on listening, you should be a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, pay $5 a month, which is you know not that much. Um, and uh, you can help support everything that we're doing. And then you get all this great bonus content. And you know that includes things like whatever it is Mark's about to say. Um, and, uh, um, I strongly encourage you to do that. So if you're not a member, go become one. You can listen to the rest. If you are a member, stand by. We'll be back in one moment. <laughs> 